All right, well, that's a promotion for something incredible that's coming here. It's called the Remind Conference. It happens in August. It's put on by Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. And there are some really great speakers coming here. Lecrae will be here. Ravi Zacharias himself will be here. Sam Alberry, uh, Abdu Murray, Vincent Joe Vital. They will all be here in the flesh, standing where I'm standing. And the uh, conference itself is designed for people who are in high school or who are 20-somethings, which I was going to make a joke about how I can go and some of you can't, but then I realized that I've now crossed the border into the area of not being able to go to that conference either. (laughs) But that's for the live conference. We will also have the block open, so it's kind of like a reversal of fortune thing. So if you are outside of that age range, you can register to go and and view the conference at the block. Information about all of that is at our website, ccchapel.com. Uh, Welcome, though, to Christ Community Chapel. Welcome to those of you who are here in the sanctuary. Also, if you happen to be watching this or listening to it on the internet, uh, welcome to you as well. Thanks for taking time out of your day to be here with us. If we've not met before, my name is Jimmy Cozy. I'm a part of the staff team here. I lead our student ministry, which means I get to spend the majority of my time with students in grades 6 through 12, which I love. I love being able to see God work in the lives of our young people. But I'm also uh, thrilled today for the opportunity to Uh, stand here and to look into God's word together with you. Because I think that anytime his word's open, he's speaking. And so I'm excited to hear what he has to say today. And this June has been man month, which is unlike anything we've ever done before here at CCC. But uh, we've been taking some time as a church to dream, to dream about what it would be like if uh, every man at our church lived out God's purpose for his life. And so In the first week, we talked about what it looks like to be a man after God's own heart. So a man who uh, puts God at the center of everything and lets everything else in his life fill around that. And then the second week, we talked about being courageous and persevering through any kind of difficulty that may come our way. And then last week, we talked about leaving behind a legacy of godliness. And so this is the final week of Man Month. And in this week, we're going to talk about what it looks like to be a man of purity, a man of purity. And so as we do that, it's pretty simple. We're going to answer three questions. Number one, what is purity? Number two, why would I want to be pure? And then number three, how do I become pure? So what is it? Why would I want it? And then how do I get it? And we'll start with that first question, which is what is purity? And I think to put it as simply as possible, for something to be pure means that it's unmixed. It's absent of anything else. It's all one substance. For me, Uh, And maybe for you, whenever I think of purity, the first thing I think of is water. And so water, I think we think of that when we think of purity because it's really easy to tell when water is pure. It's also really easy to tell when water is not pure. It's obvious. You can see it. Uh, I have a a three-and-a-half-year-old daughter, and uh, her name's Hollis. And this fall, she's going to head to preschool. And uh, I'm kind of hoping that when she goes to preschool this fall, one of the first things they teach her is what every kid needs to know, which is how to use and drink from one of these water bottles. Because if you've ever shared one of these with a kid, you know how it goes. Like if you're eating a snack and you're sort of sharing the water bottle with them, um, for some reason they just can't grasp it. You kind of pour it into your mouth. Instead, they do this thing where they put their whole mouth on it. Then they suck on it. And then inevitably, whatever was in their mouth before ends up in the water. I can't tell you how many times I've been at a park or something sharing a water bottle with my daughter and I've had to choose between becoming dehydrated or drinking a very loose graham cracker smoothie, right? 
But I might have to drink more of this to clear out the graham crackers from my teeth. No, I sure hope not. But this is impure. You can see right away, right? It's obvious that that water is no longer one substance. It's got some contaminants in it. And the idea of purity comes up often in Scripture. And the passage I'd like to start with today comes from Ephesians chapter 5. I'm going to start reading in verse 3. It says this. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. So when we talk about purity as it pertains to our relationship with God, the, the same is true. To be pure is to be made up of all one thing without any outside contaminant. And in this case, it would be to be made up of all godliness without an outside contaminant. And a lot of times when we think of purity as it pertains to Christianity, we almost immediately jump to sexuality. And we'll touch on that some today. And that was even touched on in the passages that we read. But I think it's bigger than that. It, it's not just in the area of sexuality. In general, to live a life of purity means to live a life that is godly without the outside contaminant of sin. And we sin when we uh, disobey God's commandments or we intentionally, intentionally live outside of alignment with the, the barriers and the, the borders and the boundaries that he has put in place for us. And so to be pure is to live a life that is characterized by the lack of that and that is all godliness and nothing else. And so uh, the question then that proceeds is, all right, why would I want to be pure? Why would I want that? And I think this is a really important question for us to answer. It's probably, it's one of the most important questions for us to answer. And really, uh, as I think about it, there are a few reasons why we would want that. And we'll explain each one of these. But the first is that sin never delivers on its promise. Uh, the second is that sin is destructive and it destroys things in our lives. And then the third is that ten, sin disrupts our relationship with God. But first, um, one of the reasons I think purity is kind of a, an awkward topic at times, when we start to talk about it, we start to shift in our seats and, and get a little bit nervous, is because of uh, the way that our culture is. I think that there is a, a hidden set of rules and laws and assumptions that lie beneath everything our, in our culture, and they kind of inform how we think, say, feel, and act. And one of these is a concept called absolute negative freedom. And absolute negative freedom is something that we believe, whether consciously or subconsciously, and it's the idea that every person is able to determine for him or herself what is right and wrong. That I can do whatever I want as long as what I'm doing is not harming another person. And that's an idea that is sort of pervasive uh, within our culture. Another way of saying it is that the only person that can tell you what is right or wrong for you is you. And anybody else who tries to do that is infringing on your freedom and is therefore harming you. I saw a survey that was done by the Barna Group in 2016 that said that 89% of American adults agreed with the following statement, that it is wrong for one person to criticize another person's life choices. 89% of American adults agreed with that kind of blanket statement. And that 
encapsulates this idea of absolute negative freedom that is kind of within our culture, that, that we determine for ourselves what's right and wrong, and that nobody has the right to tell us that there's anything right and wrong differently uh, from what we believe. And so when the concept of purity comes up, it can be kind of irritating for us because the idea behind the concept of purity is that there is a God who has the authority to come into our lives and tell us this is right for you, this is wrong for you. You can do this, you can't do that. And I think uh, every one of us, if we are really honest, probably has an area of our life where we are a little bit less comfortable with God exercising his authority than we are in other areas of our life. And so I can kind of explain what I mean on a more practical level because it is man month and one of the greatest areas of struggle for men as it pertains to purity is in the area of sexuality. And so if you think about what this law of absolute negative freedom has created in our culture as it pertains to sexuality, it's created this ideal that we aspire to, which is the idea of sexual freedom. And the idea behind it is that when it comes to our sexuality, every person can determine what is right for themselves as long as two things are true. Whatever is happening is consensual, and then whatever happen is happening is not harming another person. And so there have been a lot of outcomes that have happened in our culture because of that. Like the pervasive use of pornography or uh, promiscuous lifestyle or any of these things have all come about because an ideal that we've embraced as a culture is this ideal that we are free within our sexuality to do whatever we'd like. And if anybody tries to tell us any differently, then, then they are somehow harming us. But one of the things I want us to think about is the fact that sin rarely delivers on its promise. And so the question that I think we should all ask, no matter what the sin is that is in question, is does this actually deliver on its promises? So what I mean by that is that the, the, the prevailing wisdom when it comes to this freedom in our sexuality is that if we all embrace this idea, then people will be happier, our lives will be more whole, relationships will be deeper and more meaningful, and everybody, society as a whole, will be more complete and healthy if we sort of embrace this idea. And so the question I want us to ask again and again is, okay, is this actually delivering on its promise? As we embrace this idea, are relationships becoming deeper? Are people feeling more wholeness and less shame? Are they feeling more joy? Are they feeling less lonely? Because if the opposite is happening, then maybe we should challenge that assumption and consider an alternate way of living and thinking. I want to read you a quote from a book. And the book is called American Girls, Social Media, and the Secret Lives of Teenagers. And it's written by a person named Nancy Jo Sales, who is a journalist. She writes for uh, Vanity Fair, The Guardian, and several other publications. The book is not a faith-based book, nor do I believe the author would profess herself to be a follower of Jesus. But in this book, there's this section where there's a discussion about this group of college students who were interviewed. And they were sort of embracing this freedom idea in their, their lifestyle, especially as it pertains to their sexuality. And I think it's really interesting what was said about them. Here's what it says. The more I talk to students the more the culture of sexual freedom seems really problematic for them. Both young women and young men are seriously unhappy with the way things are. According to everything they see in pop culture, they're supposed to be having a great time, but it's rare that I find a young man or young woman who says the culture of sexual freedom and hooking up is the best thing ever. In reality, it seems to empty them out. They're getting better at not caring. Everybody is becoming a sex object, a sex toy. It's an exchange an agreement. The mainstreaming of pornography is tremendously affecting what's expected of them, and they're learning their sexuality through pornography. 
And they drink to drown out what's really going on with them. This is about uh, how can I medicate myself so that I don't feel. And so I'll ask the same question. Does that sound like that particular area of sin that we've in some ways embraced is delivering on its promise? If you ask me, it doesn't. And I know that's only one example. But that does not sound like it's leading to deeper and more meaningful relationships and wholeness and and less loneliness and more joy. It it doesn't sound that way. And so uh, the question is then, if it doesn't deliver, maybe we should consider a different way of living. But that's not the only reason why we would want to pursue a lifestyle of purity. For sure, sin rarely delivers on its promises and oftentimes it delivers baggage that it didn't typically, that it didn't initially uh, promise that it was going to deliver. But another uh, thing that we should consider is that sin can be really, really destructive within our lives. And if we think even specifically of, you know, we talked a little bit about the the sin of of pornography use. I think that's an important one for us to talk about in some ways because it's something that is pervasive even within Christianity. So I saw a survey this week as I was prereparing for this that said that 65% of Christian men admit to using pornography on at least a monthly basis. So that means two out of every three. So this is something that's not just out there, it's in here. And I think the reason why that is, is because it's one of those sins, and there's a lot of them, that, that seems harmless and is really easy to justify. You know, it can, it's, it's easy to say, well, it's not hurting anybody. It's, it's just me. There's nobody else involved. It, it gives me an opportunity to release when maybe my expectations are not met in other ways. It's a stress reliever. There are so many different ways that that particular sin can be justified. And there are other sins that we can justify the same way. But when we do that, we have to be really careful because we, we will underestimate the destructive power of sin in our lives. I think one of the best ways that I can describe uh, sin is to kind of describe it like a poison that we ingest and it can be really destructive. So here's what I mean. Uh, at the Cozy House, we have what I would consider a ongoing and constantly escalating war with mice and rodents and other vermin that seem to live in and around our house. So We live in Hudson, but we live pretty close to Streetsboro. So if there were a rural part of Hudson, which I don't think that there is, but if there were, I think our house would qualify, which means that we deal with a lot of mice and other creatures who kind of uh, bother us. And so a few years ago, uh, I came to the realization that there were a family of mice who had taken up residence in and around our pantry. Because I would come downstairs and I would go to eat breakfast and I'd open the pantry and get out, but all the boxes of cereal would have like little holes in the corner and there would be like paper towels and tissue paper shredded all over the floor. And so uh, I decided that I needed to take action. And so the first thing I did, the first wave was I got a bunch of mouse traps and I started setting them and I had a moderate amount of success. I caught a few mice and uh, I was happy. But then one of the things I realized is I think mice are a lot smarter than we give them credit for because I began setting more. I think I just took the low-hanging fruit out, all the, the unintelligent mice. And then the smart ones are like, finally, like natural selection is running its course here and we're going to have a, a better mouse family. But because uh, I started setting more traps and I would come downstairs and find the traps clean of bait but not set, which was really frustrating for me. So I decided I needed to kind of escalate things. And so I went to the store 
started walking around looking for whatever I could find. And I, I stumbled across a package of something called Decon, which maybe you've heard of. But uh, if you haven't, I'm going to explain it and give a little advertisement right now. But uh, I picked up the package and I started to read it. But essentially what it is, is a poison for mice. And so you take this little blue block of poison and you set it near the hole where you think the mice are coming from. And it's somehow attractive to the mice. They want to eat it. It smells good. It tastes good. And so they eat it. But they like it so much that they actually take more of it back to the nest to where, where the rest of the mice live. And so all the mice begin eating it and enjoying it. What they don't know is that the active ingredient in it is an anticoagulant. And so what happens is slowly over time, their blood loses the ability to clot. And so they all suffer massive internal bleeding and they all die. And I was reading this package and I was saying, yes, I want that at my house Give me the mouse genocide today. <laughs> so I took it home and I started using it. Uh, but the one thing I did not take into consideration is that Emily and I have another sort of vermin that lives in our house. And uh, it is our dog. His name's Sweatpants. He's a 75-pound blue-tick coonhound whose ears are much, much bigger than his brain. And so... <laughs> Those of you who have dogs, you know there are times where you can tell that something has gone awry, where the dog's up to something that, that the dog shouldn't be up to. And we had one of those times. It was about 11:15 uh, at night. We were sitting in our kitchen preparing to go upstairs and go to sleep. And the dog was not laying where he typically lays. And so immediately for me, red flags started going up. So I walked into uh, our living room and he was laying there on the floor, sort of grinning that grin that dogs do when they know they've done something they're not supposed to do. And they know that you know that they know that they've done something that, you're not, that they're not supposed to do. And so he's sitting there and laying there and underneath him, this decon block is in about 50 pieces. And so immediately my wife started to become very upset by this. I became moderately upset by this. And so uh, we called the vet, but it was 1130 at night. The vet was not closed. They didn't answer or the vet was not open. They didn't answer. What I learned that night is that there's a such thing as a 24-hour pet emergency room, which is a good thing to have in your back pocket in case your dog ever eats poison. Uh, but in which we ended up there, which by the way, I think uh, spending time in a pet emergency room after midnight is an experience every person should have at some point in their life. But before we went to that emergency room, before we did that, I did something that was very upsetting to my wife. I sat down on the floor and like a little tiny blue puzzle, I started to try to piece back together this block of decon. And what I was doing was trying to make a determination. I was trying to figure out, number one, how much poison did my dog actually eat? And then number two, is it enough for me to be worried or can we just kind of wait this out and see what happens? And so I suggested that to Emily and she very clearly suggested to me that if we woke up the next morning and sweatpants had passed, passed away, then I would be the next person in our house <laughs> that would pass away. And so we ended up at the doggy emergency room. But here's why I tell you that. I tell you that because there, are, there is sin that we willingly allow into our lives and we willingly engage in, whether it's through uh, things that we look at, things that we watch, things that we listen to, things that we read, even the way that we talk or act. Each one of us has some level of sin that we willingly ingest, much like that poison. But the problem for us, the problem for me then was I didn't actually know the threshold. I don't know enough about the chemistry of that poison to know if my dog ate too much of it. And we don't know the tipping point or the threshold 
in our lives of when sin is going to destroy something, when it's going to catch up to us, or what it's going to destroy. So for example, uh, 56% of divorce cases list the usage of pornography as at least a partial reason that led to that. And there's probably nobody who was involved in, that, in those cases who sat down to engage in that behavior thinking, oh, I had better not do this because if I do this one more time, this is going to be the one that pushes it over the edge so that my spouse leaves me. Because the problem for all of us is we don't actually know what that tipping point is. We don't know what sin is going to destroy. We don't know when it's going to destroy it. We don't know how it's going to, how it's going to destroy it. We don't always feel the immediate consequences, but that doesn't mean that they're not there. And eventually, it will destroy something in our lives. We don't get to choose what that is. And so a question for us to ask ourselves when we talk about pursuing a life of purity is what is an acceptable level of that to allow in our life? An acceptable risk to put at risk our, uh, our family, our children, our career, our reputation, or even our own lives. What's, what's the amount where we feel safe? This is enough, but if I do this, then, then there's going to be problems for me. And so we have to ask ourselves when we're thinking about this kind of behavior, is, is this really worth it? Is it worth the risk? And so that's another reason why we would want to pursue a life of purity, but uh, that's not even the most important reason. The most important reason is because of the impact that sin has on our relationship with God. And the best way for me to kind of lay this out is to uh, go back to the Old Testament and to kind of think about what it means for us to be in the presence of God, for us to be connected with God. So before Christ, uh, the people of God related to him through something called the sacrificial system. Essentially, it was a system of sacrifices and rituals that the people had to do. And um, the, the goal of it was for a person to become clean. And a person needed to be clean because if you were unclean, then you could not go into the presence of God. You could not connect with him or go in to worship him. So if you did something wrong or you did something that made you unclean, there was this list of of things that you had to do that once you had completed them, then you were clean again. You were pure again so that you could go in and connect with God. And it even applied to the priests who were involved in this. So I want to uh, read a passage from Exodus chapter 30, uh, starting in verse 17. This kind of describes uh, even what the priests had to do to go into the place of worship. It says, uh, The Lord says to, said to Moses, You shall also make a basin of bronze with its stand of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it with which Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet. When they go into the tent of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister, to burn a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash with water so that they may not die. So even there we see even the priests, if they wanted to go in and actually minister, they had to clean themselves before they were able to go in and and be in the presence of God. And I think all of this was designed to communicate one very important thing, and that is that our sin makes it impossible for us to be in God, be with God. Our sin makes it impossible for us to be in the presence of God, that it creates an enormous, impenetrable, unavoidable barrier between us and God, that those two things can't coexist at the same time. And so we can think all we want about the different consequences of our sin. Yes, sin does not deliver on its promises. It never gives us uh, the expectation of the good things that we think it's going to. 
Yes, it destroys things in our lives, and that's important for us to take into consideration. But the most important thing for us to take into consideration when we think about why would I want to be pure is because uh, our sin separates us from God. It disconnects us from him, which is the most important thing that we need in our lives. Each one of us is kind of like a cell phone, and you pull your cell phone off the charger at the beginning of the day, and as the day goes along, it slowly dies. And if it doesn't get reconnected to its source, then it'll die completely. And we are the same way. Our sin has disconnected us from our source, which is God himself. And unless that connection is reestablished somehow, we will eventually die both physically and spiritually. And until we see this as the primary and most important reason why we would want to live a life of purity, we are going to struggle to gain any traction because this is the biggest and most ominous thing that happens when we allow sin into our lives. And so that leads naturally to our final question, which is, how do I become pure? How do, how do I get it? And I think that we, at least I have a misconception about what it means to be pure. And maybe you're the same way. And, and here's what I mean. Uh, when I was in high school, there, I remember something, I look back on this now and I think it's really strange. In the moment, I didn't think it was that strange. But I went to a public high school and uh, during my sophomore or junior year, I was in a sort of health and physical education class. And for two days, this company came in and they did like sex education essentially for us. And then at the end of it, they gave us these pieces, to paper, pieces of paper to sign. And they were like, abstinence pledges. So it had this list of things and at the end it says, I vow that I will not do this, 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 and this until I'm married. And everybody in the class signed it and turned it in and and whatever. And uh, maybe if you've been around Christianity, you've seen things like this, whether they're purity pledges or or things like this. And the the faulty reasoning behind them, I think, is that the idea behind it is, you know, I'm going to vow that I'm going to try really hard not to do all these things, knowing that if I slip up, tear up my pledge. I've lost my purity. It's gone. I can never get it back. And I think there's a faulty assumption behind that line of thinking. And the faulty assumption is that purity is transactional, that it's a transaction, that uh, if I want to be pure, what I have to do is I have to be really, really good and not do anything bad. And if I can do that, I can take this big pile of good stuff that I've done. I can turn it in and in exchange, I am pure. I am good. But if I mess up in any way, it's gone. I've lost it. My opportunity has been eliminated. And I don't think that's how our purity works. I think if we look into God's word, what we see is that our purity is not transactional. It's positional. It's something that is given to us. It's a position that is established for us, and it's been established uh, through Christ. And I want to look at a passage from Hebrews chapter 10. I'm going to read verses 11 through 14. Here's what it says. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ, <clears throat> when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified." So there are some really, really important details in that passage. It talks at the beginning about the priests, and we talked a little bit about that earlier, how they stand day after day after day offering sacrifices again and again and again so that people can be clean, so that people can be made pure. But then it talks about Jesus. And it says, Jesus came and he offered his sacrifice one time. And then it says, he offered his sacrifice and he sat down. The implication being, I don't need to stand anymore because the work is done. There's no more work that needs to be done 
to make anybody pure. It says that he, by one offering, he has made perfect those who are being sanctified or those who belong to him. And so what that tells us is that our purity is not transactional, which is actually really good news for us. Because here's the reality. I I can't speak for everybody. I can only speak for myself. But I know that even if I grit my teeth and try really hard to be pure, I might do okay. But if I hold my life up to the standard of God's word and what he's laid out for me, no matter what, I will always find areas where I'm falling short. It is impossible for me to be perfect and to be pure on my own. And so if my purity is transactional, I am in a whole lot of trouble. But that's the beauty of the gospel. It's not that way. That instead of that, Jesus went to the cross and he exchanged his purity for our impurity. So Jesus lived a perfect life and then when he went to the cross, he took what we deserve for our our impurity. He took what it took to clean us up and in exchange, we get credit for his perfection. So that means that when God looks at you and he looks at me, he doesn't see a list of all the sins and all the things we should be ashamed of and all the mistakes we've made and all the things in our past. He doesn't see any of that. Instead, what he sees is Jesus in his perfection because we get credit for that which we did not do. That's what Jesus did for us when he went to the cross. Our purity is not a transaction. It's not something that we earn. It is something that has been earned for us and given to us through Christ. And if we are ever going to be truly transformed, if we are ever going to become more like what God created us to be, it has to start there. It has to start with the realization that that our purity, our perfection, whatever you want to call it, is not something that we earn. We, We can't clean ourselves up and then come to God. We come to God, we come to Jesus, and then he begins the process of cleaning us up. And we have to start there. And I also know that there are people here today who are in the midst of the struggle right now. You're caught in the weeds of whatever struggle for sin, whatever, whether it's pornography or or something completely different. And I know that it can feel like there's no way out. There's no hope. What I want you to hear are a couple things. First of all, your starting point, if you ever want to be free from that, is with Jesus and with the realization that, that that he is the only way out of that. Uh, But then I also want you to hear that he has has given us his people. He's given us the church for a reason. And there's a lot of things we do when we gather together like this as followers of Jesus. We praise him, we worship him, we have relationships with one another. But one of the biggest reasons why God created this is so that we can help one another grow and help one another become more like Jesus. And that's kind of, there's kind of a paradox with purity. I don't know how you think about it, but when I think about it, one of the things I'm tempted to think is the people that I know that seem the most pure are that way because they're really strong. And I think, wow, that person must be so strong because they have the ability to uh, withstand temptation. They don't mess up. They don't slip up. They must be so strong. But what I'm coming to realize as I look at scripture is that the people who are the most pure are not that way because they're super strong. They are that way because they are the most fully aware of just how weak they are but then they've come to that starting point of who Jesus is and what he's done to them, and they've tapped into a totally different kind of strength. But God's people are here to help with that as well. And so if you are in the midst of that struggle, what I would encourage you with is this. I would encourage you to value your spiritual health and your relationship with Jesus more than whatever it is that you feel like you stand to lose by coming and seeking out that help. Because there are people within Jesus' church that are able to help. And, and the starting point is with him, 
But then from there, he has given us this to help with things like that. And so as we sit here at the end of man month, I want us to just imagine what it would be like if we actually lived out the purposes that God has called us to. Imagine if we were people who were after God's own heart, who put him at the center of everything and let everything else fill in around him. Imagine if we were people who uh, lived courageously through any difficulty, knowing that something much better is coming for us through Jesus. Or imagine if we were people who left behind a legacy of godliness. Or imagine if we were people who pursued a life of purity based on who Jesus is and what he's done for us. Imagine what that would mean. Imagine what it would mean for our families. Imagine what it would mean for our children. Imagine what it would mean for this church, for our city, for our workplace, for this world. If we want to talk about being transformed in 2018, if we start to live this way, we will be transformed like nothing we've ever seen. We'll be transformed in 2018. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for today, and we thank you for this opportunity that we have to be here and to worship you. And we thank you for your word and that you reveal yourself to us through it. Uh, But we thank you most of all that you have revealed yourself to us through your son, Jesus Christ. That through him you have uh, made us pure, which is really good news for us because it's it's something we could have never done through our own strength or our own ability. So we thank you that uh, through his death and resurrection we are credited with righteousness and purity that is far better than anything we could dream of. We pray that as a church, we would live our lives based on that truth, that that would be at the center of us and everything else in our lives would flow out of that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.